Good morning. How's everybody this morning? We're going to listen to Tom Hartman. Why sickness bankrupts you. others insanely rich. Author Tom Hartman explores how and why attempts to implement affordable universal health care in the United States have been derailed and what the country can do to make this a reality. Host of the Tom Hartman program, Tom Hartman himself joins us now to discuss. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Jim, Robbie, Ryan. It's great being here with you. Thank you. So, so Tom, what, what is what is your, your takeaway from diving, diving into this that that the conversation is missing? Like, what, what are we missing when we talk about health care reform? Well, the, 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 the major impediments to health care um, have been in kind of two, two phases. And the first one I was largely unaware of. Um, in the late 1880s, uh, a fellow by the name of Frederick Hoffman came over here from Germany. He was a, uh, a numbers freak, a brilliant. He's the guy, he was hired by the insurance, uh, Prudential Insurance Company, and he was the guy who figured out that there was an association between tobacco and lung cancer, diet and cancer, uh, 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 processed foods and cancer, and asbestos and mesothelioma. And he ran, uh, he married a southern belle down in Georgia and uh, into a very kind of racist plantation family. And he ran the numbers on death and, morta- and morbidity on sickness on black people versus white people and came to the conclusion that black people were genetically inferior and therefore, and he wrote a book about this the same year Plessy came out in 1896, it was called Race Traits and Tendencies of the American Negro, came to the conclusion that if we simply denied health care to black people for a couple of generations, the entire race would, would uh, die out and that would solve the race problem in America. That became the rallying cry against kind of a national health care system. He, he became a very famous man, and uh, he testified before Congress. He, he went on a road show, the Prudential, which he became the vice president of, the largest insurance company in the country at the time, um, put him on a road show, and he traveled all over the United States, testified before state legislatures with this particular pitch. And it, uh, it, it was embraced by President, president Woodrow Wilson. It became part of their eugenics program, which Hitler picked up in the 30s and turned into the final solution. Um, it, it was used to block Teddy Roosevelt in 1912 when he wanted a national health care system. It was used to block Franklin Roosevelt in 1937 when he tried it. It was, it was used to block Truman in 47. It was used to block, the, even though he died in 46, Hoffman, in 61 when Kennedy proposed the national health care system, uh, they blocked it. And in 66 when uh, LBJ got Medicare, the reason why the Southern Democrats, the the, ra- the Dixiecrats, the racist Southern Democrats at the time, now now the Republicans, the reason why they demanded a 20% hole in Medicare for for people over 65 was that they didn't want elderly Black people to be able to afford even that 20%. They knew they couldn't afford that. You know, poor people couldn't afford that 20%, so they wouldn't show up at hospitals and doctors' offices. Racism up until the 70s really was largely driving this and and largely drove much of the Tea Party opposition to Obamacare, by the way. way. Since then, now, the health insurance companies have become these huge multi-billion dollar giants and any attempt to reform the industry or to produce national health care, in addition to that racial piece, which has been with us since the 1880s, um, uh, 
that has diminished somewhat, but now, uh, you know, they'll just peel off a few hundred million bucks out of the five, ten billion dollars a month they're making in profits, and, you know, pour it onto whichever politician they want. Like, they gave Joe Lieberman a million dollars, and he killed the, the public option back during the Obama stuff. So these are the two dynamics that are largely at work in America, and it's why we're the only developed country in the world that doesn't declare that health care is a right and have some sort of a national system. Yeah, I don't know if you can characterize all opposition to a na uh, national, large national system as based in sort of racism or cynicism. I mean, we, our, our country was founded in a different way that not to have large unitary national government, but to have 50 kind of different governments and a, a structure for cooperation. But I, I mean, it, it's written into our founding documents. It's somewhat been overcome over 200 years. We now have lots of powerful national federal government, but the, the you know, the founding documents thwarted that John, effort, and I think a lot of the, some of the Tea Party, uh, obviously I, I think there were racist elements of various conservative movements, some of them, but I, I think there was also some <laughs> skepticism of large national government that actually did go back to the way it's intended to be, or was intended to be. I, a, the way it was intended to be, if you're talking about the Articles of Confederation, that really didn't work, that's why we got the Constitution. And there are a whole bunch of jobs that the federal government has that are clearly defined in the, in the Constitution. The general welfare of the people is mentioned both in the preamble and in Article One, Section 8. And if we decided a long time ago that general welfare includes like having we all collectively pay for fire departments to put out our houses when they're on fire, what about when your body's on fire? Isn't that equally part of the general welfare? But the local government not, uh, handles the fire department, not the national, one large national fire department is not what we have. You've got many, many parts of the commons, public schools, fire departments actually get federal money, police departments get federal money, our roads get federal money. The federal government has for a long, long time involved itself in this. In fact, it was the George Washington administration that signed legislation that began paying for health services for poor people in the poor houses in Washington, D.C. It was the John Adams administration, the second presidency. Both founders, both participants, uh, you know, and neither of them were at the Constitutional Convention, but both participants in that area that signed into law the first single-payer health care system. It only applied to merchant marine seamen because that was so essential to commerce in the United States. But these were not even members of the military, and they were required to participate in the single-payer system. So we yeah. have a long history of this. This is not a this is not a federalism issue. Right. I just want to, if I could say that, you know, when it comes to municipalities, by the way, you do have to have a, a fire department, I believe, schools in order to even be considered a city. Uh, you know, there's some regulation on what it takes. But uh, Tom, my question for you is, you know, I, I understand the history. You're shedding a lot of light on this that I've never heard of my, myself. But do you think that sometimes when we turn these sort of issues, and I'm a big proponent of Medicare for all, but when we turn these issues into a racial issue, that it almost makes it counterproductive. Um, you know, there, there seems to be this sort of visceral reaction that happens is when we say the reason we have X, Y, Z thing is because of racism. You get a lot of people that push back on that, and they feel like they, you know, they take this up. Uh, whereas instead of arguing for it on behalf of the merits of all of us today, you know, having Medicare for all, and I understand, you know, you're saying, well, the Dixiecrats are now Republicans. I, I think a lot of those people aren't even alive today, so I don't know if it's even fair to say, you know, those are the Republicans that were the Dixiecrats. But for today, 
the argument for Medicare for all, I don't know how productive it is to bring racism into it without that being counterproductive. You see what well, I'm I saying? Race, right up until the 60s, race was the major issue. The AMA was segregated, our hospitals were segregated, uh, 100%, in fact, that Medicare was the, probably the most successful desegregation program ever. But as I pointed out, you know, since the 70s and 80s, it has shifted from being largely racial, although it's, it, I, I doubt you ever saw any black people at Tea Party protests against Obamacare. But nonetheless, um, since, the, since the 1980s, instead of it being largely racial, it's been mostly giant corporations protecting their, their, uh, their cash cow. We have a right. health insurance industry in the United States that has attached itself to our backs like giant leeches that no other developed country in the world has. They make billions in profit. Um, uh, one company, United Healthcare, is the Dollar Bill McGuire, the name that the, United, the Wall Street Journal gave it. Did you say there were no black people at Tea Party rallies? Uh, <laughs> let's go with few. few. <laughs> Maybe disproportionately fewer. Uh, there were certainly one or two. But, Tom, you, it's, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting question because, you know, clearly, you know, this, over the last, you know, 200 years of, uh, of American history, Racism in, in the U.S. has divided the working class in a way that has made it uh, much more difficult for the U.S. to get the kind of universal social programs that a lot of other industrialized countries have. Like that is that is a, that is a clear consequence of, of of our history. At the same time, as Kim said, when you point out that history, a bunch of people recoil. They don't want they don't want to hear they don't want to hear anything about that. You know. So so how do you how do you get to a place? Where you can acknowledge the truth, you know, draw the appropriate lessons, you know, from that. Because if it is in fact this history of racism that is standing in the way of social progress, it doesn't help anybody to pretend that it's not. But how how do you acknowledge that to then also move move forward in a way that appeals to uh, a vast a vast number of people who don't want to hear anything about it? Yeah, excellent point, and thank you for making it. Um, I think the, the fact that the average American family is spending about $3,000 a year more than families in any other developed country on health care is a starting point. We pay twice as much roughly for drugs as anybody else. We pay, uh, it, it, we're just paying massively. I was on Danish radio a few years back um, interviewing a conservative politician, and I said, oh, you're a conservative. You must hate the national health care system. He was like, what, are you crazy? Um, and, and, and so I said, you know, and, and I had just been in Copenhagen, and I said, oh, you, well, you must be really upset that they just turned 20% of the streets or whatever the percentage was into bicycle only. And he was like, no, that's going to lower my taxes. I'm like, how? And he says, because our taxes pay for health care. So if more people ride their bikes to work, more people are going to be healthy, and that's going to lower my taxes. There'll be fewer heart attacks and strokes. So we have all these other countries, the other 34 members of the OECD, the richest countries in the world, they all have systems where the country gets it, and the country is incentivized to keep people healthy. Here in the United States, we have this perverse incentive. It's the exact reverse, where, where we've, we, we don't pay for the consequences of alcoholism, obesity, uh, tobacco addiction, uh, you know, uh, lack of exercise, things like that. In any consequential way, as a society, we pay for it individually, and so it gets buried. And then on top of that, we've got this insurance industry that, like I said, is just sucking all this money out and paying its CEOs. In the case of United Healthcare and Bill McGuire, $1.6 billion. His successor, Stephen Hemsley, uh, $700 million. Um, you know, that's, that's mind-boggling.
the book is The Hidden History of American Healthcare, Why Sickness Bankrupts You and Makes Others Insanely Rich. Uh, Tom, thanks so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. More